there are two maxims or aphorisms from the alchemical traditions that I think uh, I'd like to share and I think actually they're relevant and important for um, any practice, for all practices, maybe for all paths, um, for all practices, um, meditative, spiritual, um, also for uh, practice of psychotherapy and the path of um, psychotherapy and healing and all uh, many, many directions and um, dimensions of practice uh, they would be applicable to and important to consider in. So the first, and I can't, uh, sorry, I can't recall where I uh, came across this uh, or read it, um, but the first is the strength of the vessel. That's the, the vessel is the alchemical vessel uh, that holds the, the material that's being worked on. The strength of the vessel must be proportionate to the tension in the material, we could say the energy in the material. So the strength of the vessel must be proportional to, proportionate to the energy in the material. And the second, I think I've shared uh, in the past in some talk or other, um, she who masters the fire, masters the work. One who masters the fire, masters the work. Okay, so two uh, gems of wisdom there, quite general and, and broad-ranging in their applicability. But, you know, if it's not already obvious, uh, just to, to state that, you know, if we're going to open and explore this territory of eros, of desire, of soul-making and all that, but especially of eros, I'm really going to open it up uh, with integrity, with thoroughness, comprehensiveness, depth, uh, intelligence then um, that opening up and that exploration we demands that we um, take care, care of a lot of different aspects, dimensions, and um, elements uh, of, of that path of opening and exploration. Demands that we bring also a certain wisdom and um, art and skill to the whole process. So I want to go into some of that today and um, look at what, what, what might these two alchemical m maxims mean and mean for us and explore what they mean and what might they mean for our explorations. Um, <clears throat> so we already said uh, in a previous talk now that the notion of a vessel um, for the soul-making enterprise, for the soul-making work, a notion of the vessel for the eros, um, sometimes that's provided by um, the, the boundaries that are in place in a certain relationship or relationships, and that they create uh, what we call a temenos, a sacred space, a, a vessel that holds and heats the material, the work, uh, the soul material. So the eros is functioning as fire there, and there's a, a vessel created by certain boundaries in different, in all kinds of different ways, in fact. And meditation is also a boundary. In the meditation, um, one isn't acting out uh, certain, uh, whatever it is, uh, images, etc. We've opened up the possibility that there's m the body moves and reflects uh, somehow or refracts what's happening um, imaginally uh, and energetically and erotically, but sometimes the body is still also. But generally speaking, there's not an acting out, there's not a concretization or implementation um, in manifest actuality of, of, of the image. So that meditation too, meditation posture, meditation session, etc., also functions as a kind of um, vessel terminus. But the whole question, you know, in, in a broader sense of what makes, um, the, what, what contributes to the strength of a vessel, what makes a vessel strong, you know, it's complex. There's a lot of uh, things to consider, a lot of factors that go into that. And even if you think just in terms of physical vessels that are strong, some are strong um, 
and uh, yet brittle or strong up to a certain point and then they might shatter. So another kind of strength, and this is something we have to consider very much in, in the work about eros and soul making, another kind of strength comes from uh, or with elasticity, that the strength of a vessel, its ability to actually not burst and so that thus to contain uh, the material and the work and the fire um, comes from its elasticity or in part from its elasticity, its capacity to stretch, to be fluid, to morph and take on different shapes when it needs to. Why, why is this relevant to our work? Uh, in particular, because, exactly because of the nature of what we've explained of the eros psyche logos dynamic and its tendency, its natural inclination to expansion of image, of psyche, of eros, expansion, growth, widening, deepening, you can hear it's going to need a vessel that's elastic. Um, so there's, you know, right away we can see just uh, in, terms of, in terms of that analogy, there's, there's a lot um, uh, with elasticity, there's a lot that's uh, implied. Uh, it's a complex issue, this, this question of, of strength of, of the vessel. Uh, and the word fire in, in the another in the other alchemical um, aphorism, you know, she who masters the fire masters the work. Fire can mean a lot of different things in different um, uh, practices, you know. Uh, as can vessel, you know, vessel might be a relationship, like a psychotherapeutic relationship or teacher-student relationship becomes a vessel. But again, many possibilities of what the vessel actually is. The vessel can be the body or the psyche. You know, um, but fire could be again m- refer to many does refer to many different things. So in any practice, um, it would fire is also connected with effort um, and intensity. The uh, intentness and intensity that we bring to bear on the work, whatever work that is, if it's meditation practice or you know traditional insight meditation or. Uh, noting a rising and passing, or concentration, or whatever it is, meta, you know. Um, the questions of effort and intensity, uh, we could say that's part of fire. You know, um, uh, I've talked a lot about that in, in the past. But also, of course, we've said uh, on this retreat, eros is fire. Eros is flame, desire, fire, uh, longing. All this is, is fire. So that, um, this second alchemical maxim comes very much into uh, this work um, but it's not it's not simple even the question of mastery do we ever as i as i suggested in earlier talk do we ever really completely master uh, the fire that is given to us and the eros that comes through us or is it always going to be eventually bigger than us and even if it is always going to be bigger than us because of its divinity, because of the eros psyche logos dynamic, because it will keep expanding and opening up other dimensions and meanings and resonances and power, um, does that mean that we should abandon any attempts at mastery, at, at developing our, our ability and our capacity and our skill and our art? This is complex. All this is complex. Um, fire burns. You know, we've said this before. Fire burns, so it demands care. And yet without fire, not, you know, we're, we're as human beings, just bi- evolutionarily, biologically, we're very limited in what we can do without fire. He, she, who masters the fire, masters the work. And in relation to the vessels um, analogy, uh, you know, I've talked in the past on certain retreats about this uh, teaching from Lurianic uh, Kabbalah, um, from the Kabbalah of Isaac Luria, uh, th- about the shattering of the vessels, Shvirat HaKilim. It's not just saying things are impermanent, it's saying actually um, organically woven into psychological development, cosmological development, conceptual development, development of relationship, etc. The vessels that we form, again, whether they're relational, conceptual, intellectual, emotional, um, energetic, uh, all, all kinds of things. They're at at different points in our uh, could say soul's development, or just the, the the movement of the soul. You know, they might need not just to stretch, but to shatter. 
vessel that we've taken care to build up that provides a terminus, provides a support of a structure, containment, orientation, um, shatters. Sometimes very unexpectedly, sometimes violently, sometimes it just sort of melts. Um, but this is, uh, you know, I would say an inevitable part of living life deeply as a human being, also as cultures. Um, you know, that shattering is maybe more or less kind of sudden or violent or whatever. Um, but it's part of what happens if there is eros. You could say it's part of what happens, um, of course, when the eros, you know, ignites that whole eros psyche logos dynamic because then it expands and at some point we might have to shatter something because the wall won't budge otherwise. It's not elastic, it won't expand. So yes, there's building, uh, developing uh, the strength of the vessel or vessels and their elasticity and uh, mastering the fire. But even these concepts, they're not so simple. Not so simple. And, you know, just a reminder, and uh, all practices, there is no such thing as a practice or a path without dangers without dangers that may be more specific to this path or that path. Not necessarily more or less dangerous, as just in the dangers are specific to each path. So oftentimes people, you know, especially when they're first hearing about imaginal practice, or maybe first hearing about it, they'll say, oh, that's dangerous. Um, you know, that sounds dangerous. And it's just kind of what we've been indoctrinated by. Is it really any more dangerous than, uh, let's say, simple mindfulness practice? Or are the dangers just different? You know, if you've been reading the newspapers in the last, uh, I don't know, year or so, um, you'll be aware of articles that are appearing that about uh, mindfulness and eight-week courses and teaching my mindfulness and how it has, um, there have been occasions where it seems like the mindfulness itself has caused some kind of mental destabilization or emergence of repressed trauma or, or this or that. Uh, so, and if we just take as an example, you know, simple mindfulness practice in the way that it's kind of taught in a very secular context these days, um, I've had people say to me, you know, I've been practicing mindfulness and I got a lot from it, but at the same time I feel neutered. A woman said to me, I feel neutered. Powerful words. What does it mean to feel neutered? Something has been cut off, amputated from her being. In this case, it has a whole um, erotic connection, doesn't it, to be neutered? Um, or another friend, a close friend, said to me that she, you know, practicing living in a in a in a, in a insight meditation center for some years as many years ago and something in her soul she didn't quite she knew something was going on at the time but couldn't quite articulate it or get clear about it until actually some years later something in her soul was dying was being killed so yes a lot of learning a lot of development a lot of lovely stuff and something being killed is not so obvious at the time. The neutering is not so obvious to a lot of people as a kind of freaking out or, you know, whatever it is. And there's a lot more subtle dangers with the mindfulness um, aspect that has to do, let's say, with soul-making and with realism, the kind of realism that's um, entrenched or I- I- implicitly um, communicated as a foundation uh, uh, in 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 mindfulness teachings, mostly. So, all paths, all paths have their dangers, and this is something. It's just part of wisdom to be aware of that fact and aware of. Well, if I'm going to take this path, what are the dangers that I need to look out for? Or if I'm going to take that path, what are the particular dangers of that path? Uh, it's, I think foolish and naive to think there's such a thing as a path without danger or that the path that I'm on doesn't have dangers and then point to other paths and say they're dangerous. So, you know, uh, want to talk about bringing wisdom, uh, developing balance, um, 
um, and the R of balance and uh, bringing equanimity in to bear on this whole in and with this whole exploration of eros and soul making and at the same time uh, kind of contradict myself or balance that with um, uh, you know I may need to repeat this you know um, when we're with Eros, we're, we're, or rather when we're exploring Eros and opening that door, we're opening the door also, uh, potentially, if it's, a, if it's, again, if it's a comprehensive exploration, we're opening the door to a wider range of, let's call them archetypes, than we may have been used to, especially if we think of the Dharma in quite a narrow way. So, um, you know, the classical god Dionysus, uh, has uh, a lot to do with Eros. Eros and Dai, he's an erotic god, as, as are m- many others and, and from different traditions. So Hermes is an erotic god, you know, uh, Aphrodite, of course, from that tradition, but also in the Buddhist tradition, if you look at the tantric deities, the, a lot of them are erotic deities, you know, uh, in, in different ways. But listen to this from James Hillman about Dionysus. Uh, Dionysus. So, uh, and bear in mind what this then ar- archetypal elaboration of this god Dionysius says about the path, uh, about what the path can be uh, quite different, or or a strand of the path can be quite different than how we y- y- usually think about it in um, kind of a more narrow uh, conception, and what it might involve. Um, if if we really open up this exploration of eros, so Dionysius in in the um, myths is dismembered into countless pieces, and it happens in different ways, either at his birth or um, and then at different points, and and then he's remembered. He's remember. So we're remembering Dionysus, dismembering and remembering. Um, he's put back together. There's a kind of resurrection there as well. And Hilma says he's a, a figure of many guises and pursuits. So he is called the divided, but also the undivided, or both together, the divided, undivided. He's called the loosener, the lord of souls, the lord of wild beasts. And his realm was outside the conventional constraints of the city, outside the conventional constraints. His dances took place on hillsides near woodlands. In the city, he ruled the theatre, both comic and tragic. Can you see how this relates to everything that we're talking about? And coming apart, being dismembered, implicates a myth quite different from those that we usually associate with strength of character, for example. So this is not Hercules we're talking about. Um, This is not sort of ego willpower. This is not Artemis, the ruler of animal nature, the goddess of animal nature. It's not Hera, the queen of the household and the upholder of family values. Instead, Dionysius is the Lord of Souls, the divided God who was pulled to pieces. And he's a strange figure, this Dionysus. He was even uh, named the Stranger. He's an intoxicating life force who uh, came on the scene, would appear uh, from outside the, 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 the usual civilization, would appear together with a dancing group of satyrs and raving devotees. And he was also declared uh, to be Hades. So there's a there's some kind of strange uh, identity of Dionysus, who's the sort of life intoxicating life force with Hades, who's the invisible god of the souls in the underworld. The invisible god of the souls in the underworld. This complex, all this woven together. Can you hear the the resonances? Um, and the mirrorings of what we've even just what we've said so far on this retreat. But Hillman go, goes on. He said, you know, in in relation to then erotic arousal and desire coming into our life and disrupting things, uh, potentially disrupting things sometimes in all kinds of ways. He's not just talking about sexual. 
Again, it's talking about just that, that force, that movement of eros, and, and its um, capacity to stretch our vessels, the eros-psychologus dynamic, will sometimes shatter them. He says, realize you are not solely to blame for the conflict brought on by arousal. The source lies deeper than human nature. It is archetypal, a conflict among the gods. The call of Dionysius tends to upset the normal course of civilization, whose wise overseer, Athena is another classical goddess, did not permit his goat, Dionysus' goat, in her terrain. The goat is this very, uh, you know, uh, kind of disruptive animal, if you like. Dionysus, lord of woman, called to both genders and all ages to join his rituals. This is not something just for um, men or just for women or just for young people or or whatever. Women left their household duties to follow him into the hills for release and raving. Two old-timers with grey hair in Euripides' play The Bacchae go off to dance with Dionysus all night and all day. Now how do you hear that? How are you hearing that? Um, is there already for you a certain identity um, construct? Perhaps you're already quite identified with that kind of archetypal figure of Dionysus and that kind of actualization of behavior. Or perhaps you're identified with the opposite, the sort of picture of uh, calm and cool equanimity and uh, stillness. Um, Where is your tendency of identification, clinging attachment. And do you hear this in terms of um, uh, a necessity of concretization? Oh, I better go find the nearest rave or whatever and dance all night long. Um, Or if something needs manifestation, we've talked about this before in terms of imaginal practice, is it just a a, a very obvious translation, a very narrow, um, you know, oh, it means actually dancing. Is that what this means? This uh, does, does raving and dancing in the hills with uh, raving devotees, does that mean actually dancing? It might. It might be concretized that way, but uh, not necessarily. And the question is, does it um, and how? How does it move, and what does it call for? We've been through this before on on previous retreats. But is my interpretation of this um, this mythological figure, this this archetypal uh, figure and divinity, it, am I am I putting it into too narrow a box? In my interpretation, my translation, what's my tendency here, anyway, in relation to all this? Uh, so I'm interested, we're interested in opening up this territory, opening up a myth. A myth should open, um, uh, and, and, and these teachings should open, rather than just justify uh, what we already um, kind of believe and are, are entrenched in. I mean, partly partly the t- these teachings are to kind of uh, legitimize and realize a place for something we might have been judging ourselves or actually see that in a different light. Um, but not only to justify, to open as well. So, you know, let's go into this a little bit. What might be involved in... Um, uh, creating, you know, good vessels, right vessels, if we can use that word, um, right vessels, and um, supporting, let's call it mastery, but that really means the ability, um, with all this, a facility, um, an art, the the capacity and skill of navigation and discernment with all this. What might be involved in in um, creating and forging right vessels and and developing mastery? So those two uh, are not actually separate, just to, to make that clear from the start. Um, the uh, navigation, the capacity and skill in, in responding to what's actually happening in, in one's practice, in one's life, with Eros, with the imaginal, with soul-making, in real time, in the moment, um, the, the, our abilities to uh, bring different factors to bear and, and all that. Um, this navigation, this... this um, 
richness and complexity of responding and the skill and art and, and ability um, in all kinds of different ways, that actually creates the vessel in the moment. Yeah? So it's not like you have the prepackaged vessel and then you add a bit of mastery. The ma- that, that actually is making a vessel in, as I said, in real time, in the moment, as things are um, moving and developing. So they're not really separate, but um, but let's think about all this. You know, let's let's go into this and un- unpa- unfold it a little bit, unpack it. Uh, right vessel. So what what might that mean? You know, um, you may be aware of this, but in in Vajrayana teachings, in tantric practice, uh, at least in um, in Buddhism, in Tibetan Buddhism, and uh, and other other Buddhist traditions, they are. Uh, are almost always only presented, um, or I think almost always, they should be almost always, um, only presented um, after certain preliminary practices which are regarded as necessary. So there's a whole range of preliminaries, and I wonder if we can think too about that, like what might be a preliminary for me? What needs to be in place? What do I need to take care of and establish if I'm going to um, do this kind of practice, exploring eros, etc.? So in the Vajrayana, you know, um, the preliminaries would include ethics, Actually, you know, I don't know that tradition um, from from the inside, so to speak. So I'm I'm just uh, kind of getting this from the outside. So I'm I'm hoping and assuming this is the case. Um, it includes ethics, a grounding, an establishment of in ethics is something we'll come back to. In- includes ethics. Um, includes other practices. So, for example, the development of some samadhi is, uh, y- you know, probably a preliminary or prerequisite to doing um, uh, vajrayana practices, tantric practices. Um, it should be. This I know is is actually not the case, unfortunately. But tantric practice, uh, vajrayana practice, is is. Um, predicated is based on an understanding of emptiness and some facility with emptiness practice. Um, we'll return to this. I've said it before. Um, we'll return to this. So, um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I would state all this uh, for our path as well. That um, tantric practice also, if you talk to someone, if you read, um, you get the sense that it's also very much based on faith. There's some kind of faith operating here, um, and which may not be a, a so-called naive realist faith, as sometimes it gets um, portrayed as, or dismissed, or uh, labelled as. If there's an understanding of emptiness, uh, Tara is empty. Whoever it is, uh, this tantric deity is empty. Um, oftentimes, people don't understand this, and they're still practicing tantra, but or they think they understand it, etc. But technically, somehow, the faith that's involved is is also imbued with an understanding of emptiness. But faith is another of the preliminaries, and also even devotion, and um, tied in with faith, obviously. But that devotion needs to be embodied. Um, so you see again in, in, the, in the Vajrayana practice how um, either mantra recitation or, or the prostrations, think of people doing you know, hundreds of thousands of prostrations, how much work and time and commitment and effort is involved in that. There's an embodiment of devotion there. Yes, literally, an embodiment of devotion. Um, so all these form the preliminaries, as does a conceptual framework. Um, or other, some conceptual framework is provided for understanding um, the imaginal practice, uh, etc. Et uh, tantric practice, and and also, uh, and again, sometimes this is not so obvious from the outside, um, but sangha is implied as well. So there's the support of other people who are exploring this together, um, teachers and. Um, uh, co-adventurers, etc., that one can talk to, one can just feel nourished by, one can be in the presence of, and that kind of support that functions there. So all these ethics, other practices, samadhi, emptiness, faith, devotion that's embodied, conceptual framework, sangha, this this is all part of the preliminaries that are um, 
deemed necessary in Tantra and Vajrayana practice. And, and you know, we'd do well, I think you would do well, to, to reflect on some of this. And what does it mean for you? What does it mean for us exploring this, opening up the, the range of what practice is and the directions and dimensions of what practice can be and can involve? What might each of these uh, mean? Sangha and devotion and emptiness, understanding and ethics and all that. But preliminaries, preliminaries, like it's a, it's a question. I'll come back to it. Um, it's a question. And because part of that question is, or inherent in, in the very concept of preliminaries, is, um, you know, pre, prerequisite, preliminary. It's like, does that imply a certain ordering of, the, of, of my development in practice, that of, of the ordering, um, an ordering of the development of what, of an ordering of what practices I'm developing. In other words, do I need to, as, as I mentioned in a, in a previous talk, do I need to develop my capacity to, to really say no to that cookie or that um, second slice of dessert or whatever it is um, when I don't really need it and really like really feel secure in that um, before I attempt any of this stuff? Do I need uh, to um, feel that I'm not just pulled around by uh, the Vedana or by the promise of someone might love me or, or whatever it is um, and make me feel okay about myself uh, before I open up this exploration of Eros? So, yes, some people um, do do that first, and some people, and then get interested in this other stuff. Some people do that, never get interested in this other stuff. Some people um, uh, do uh, need to do that first, you know, need to feel that, that um, kind of establishment and security and development before they can open this. And others, as I said in a previous talk on this retreat, others can't wait. There's something in the uh, depth and aliveness of the eros that moves through them um, in this life uh, that they, they they can't wait or things are happening and and the the investigations and the development and into kind of um, more traditional kinds of letting go and this you know exploration of eros um, need to go on somehow in parallel you know so we touched on this before but I would say both letting go in both the sort of um, more superficial sense of the you know the cookie and the chocolate cake and all this and the tea and all that um, and um, uh, and the deeper sense that we talked about in terms of really letting go of subtle clinging what we were calling and really opening up this whole range of insights into dependent rising and emptiness both all that and a sort of uh, conscious and mindful um, exploration um, uh, development uh, of art with with regard to eros um, both of these um, i I would say you know for me more and more uh, I, I would regard as both of them are elements or part of of what I would conceive to be a full path a full practice yeah if we're just going to say, um, Eros, is, you're talking about desire, or that's just clinging, and that just leads to suffering, um, that just implies, well, just put it down. What's, you know, we've said all this, but don't, don't, um, don't uh, engage with Eros, it's fire, don't go near it, you know, uh, just put it down. But, we, we, you know, most of us uh, listening to this are probably lay people, we're not celibate renunciates, for a start. Um, actually, again, if you've if you've lived for a while in monasteries, or you know, uh, you, you know, there's still a question. Actually, how renunciate are a lot of monastics? They may not be having sex, but there's a lot of other opportunities for um, sense pleasures and uh, indulgences, etc. Um, but anyway, uh, both lay people and um, uh, celibate renunciates, whether they're monastic or, or lay celibate renunciates, um, eros is there already. That's partly what I'm trying to say on the street. It's already there as as a as an element of our being, uh, as an element of our soul, as a force in our lives, 
and in our practice. So even just eros with regard to the path, uh, which we'll come back to, to talking about what does that mean, um, and eros with regard even just to a narrow range of images and fantasies that are alive for us. Maybe they're just the Buddhist ones, the sort of classical Buddhist ones, but there's eros in relation to them and to the path. Even if it's just that range and that those kinds of um, directions of eros that are allowed, eros is there already, it's alive in our lives and it needs kind of addressing, it needs understanding, it needs exploring. But if we, as, as lay people, um, are just going to believe something, you know, in, in, incredibly sort of um, simplistic, oversimplistic and dismissive as uh, eros is, is basically craving and it brings suffering, um, then um, really what we're believing or what we're um, kind of buying into is, if we buy into that, we're also buying into that, okay, then I'm deciding to live, you're deciding to live as a lay person, so you're effectively then deliberately engaging in what leads to suffering which somehow indirectly implies that you're you're kind of either a bit stupid, um, we're a bit stupid, or our practice is essentially a waste of time. I mean, we may get a little benefit, but um, it's really what we're doing is opting for some version of the path that is, com- that is really not a full version. It's really not the real deal. Now, of course, some people believe exactly that, and either decide to be monastics or just hope that in a future life they get born to be, a, you know, and able to be a monastic or something. Some people actually believe that. Um, but, you know, really, is it true? Is that true? Um, the whole lot of it. Is it just true that Eros just leads to suffering? It's that simple, therefore leave it, you know, put it down and just turn away and or put up with some kind of, um, you know, pretty half-assed attempt at, at, uh, at the path. Is that really true? And we're just sort of, uh, yeah, putting up with with uh, really second best. Or, um, or do we need as the whole tent, you know, uh, basis of the retreat? Do do we need other other concepts and conceptual frameworks here so that we can really include um, eros and include the exploration of it as well as um, you know other. Uh, other ways of, uh, you know, the other sort of parallel uh, factor of, of uh, letting go, um, both at the more superficial everyday level and at the really deep exploration level. Do we need to, um, uh, other ideas and practices that can actually allow us to ex- include and explore both? So there's this whole question about ordering and, and all that. But I would I would say you know um, an exploration of eros um, in in the wide sense. Um, you know again I, I've said this before, but just to say again. So you know if we talk going back to those um, uh, first two alchemical maxims and say eros is fire and the vessel needs to be strong so it can you know strong so it doesn't burst and all all this kind of stuff or melt or whatever um it can sound like wow this is something really intense and as dangerous that we're doing and but but bear you know uh, don't get carried away with those um with those particular images of fire or you know alchemical vessels heating up and perhaps cracking and all that, all that stuff you know um yeah there's that um possibility that we're dealing sometimes with something that's really um, strong, that's really stretching our being emotionally, energetically, conceptually, psychically, and all that. But also a lot of eros, a lot of the experience of it is really something quite subtle. Um, and uh, as I said before, you know, practice for me needs to be able to span that whole range. Um, yes, the intense, yes, the stretching, um, and yes, sometimes even the breaking, um, but also the subtle and, and the easily overlooked and the not particularly remarkable and not very intense. Um, it's not the case that one is the real deal and the other isn't at all. So don't get too, um, you know, sort of taken for a ride by, by some of the uh, imagery from alchemy or, or other, other things. Um, but uh, we would say the exploration of eros in the broad sense, not just sexual, not just intense, but yes, all, all of that, the, in, the intense and the not intense and the sexual and the not sexual uh, 
imagery and all that. Um, it needs, uh, you know, one thing it needs is, uh, touching on what we've already mentioned, is I would say a heartfelt, integrated, embodied rootedness and commitment to ethics. Heartfelt, integrated, embodied rootedness in and commitment to ethics. In, in, and why I'm saying all that is, 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 um, is because it, some people, the commitment to ethics is actually coming out of fear. Or it's just coming out just because so-and-so authority said and one has never questioned it. I'm talking about something that's really heartfelt. It's coming deep in the being. There's an engagement, a commitment to that's integrated into into one's life and embodied in one's life. Um, and, uh, and 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 co- there's a commitment there and a rootedness there. Um, so I'm using I'm choosing these words very deliberately. Um, but that involves an engagement, a living, and a questioning. So sometimes what happens is people just, um, whether it's Buddhist ethics or um, the ethics of Western societies, you know, as they stand in whatever era one lives in, it's really just a person is doing this just because they're afraid of the consequences or or they're told to to do it by some authority. They've never really questioned it. and sometimes that's, you know, okay. The um, person hasn't developed that capacity yet. Um, and sometimes, actually, uh, it, it, it uh, creates a situation where the ethics are actually not full enough. So I've, I've spoken about this in, in relation to Buddhist ethics, that sometimes because they're, um, A, made at a time b- before globalization, before um, climate change, etc., um, and from the perspective um, more uh, of um, uh, simplifying one's consciousness and one's life rather than actually, uh, and maybe, you know, uh, ensuring a good rebirth and all that, um, rather than actually um, uh, other reasons, for, for instance, that came with, with other, that are there in other religious traditions. Because of all that, sometimes um, Buddhist ethics actually needs a bit more questioning and expanding. So questioning ethics doesn't mean giving up this or that necessarily. I mean, it might be giving up this thing that I used to hold as an ethical constraint. It, it might. You might decide that's... That I, I no longer really believe that. I no longer feel that that's the the appropriate or right thing to do. But um, it might also operate the other way. In other words, I really engage um, in a questioning of, of ethics, lived, beautiful, embodied, heartfelt, um, and that causes me to actually um, extend my ethical commitments beyond, let's say, what other uh, the five precepts as they usually understood. I've spoken about all that before in other talks. But uh, I would say exploration of Eros need, needs that heartfelt, integrated, embodied rootedness and commitment to ethics, okay? And including the questioning of, of our ethics ongoing. Um, a second thing is that it needs, I would say, is um, skill and confidence in emotional awareness and uh, in ha- you know with emotional energetics and just energetics in in general skill and confidence in emotional awareness and energetics and this is why we put so much emphasis on the emotional and energy body and 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 stated that that was a prerequisite for this course etc um, uh, so that means uh, you know, skill and confidence to be able to notice what's going on emotionally, energetically in the body, um, and uh, including subtle, so it's really subtle um, manifestations um, uh, of emotion and energies, uh, not just the really obvious ones, really subtle um, movements and manifestations there, and to be able to notice and discern and handle also. Um, energies, especially the stronger ones. So really to have some skill with the energy body and being able to open if energies are strong uh, so that there's uh, not this pressure there, something we'll return to, to allow energies to flow in different ways and when they feel a bit blocked, um, to, you know, the the capacity to tolerate um, energies that are intense and creating a feeling of pressure and all that. So this, I would say, is a second, um, uh, you know, um, demand, if you like, or, or necessity um, for the exploration of eros uh, 
in, in practice. And the third is some degree of what we could call trust or faith or even wisdom, actually, a little trust. Uh, and as I mentioned before, this might even become as a kind, uh, come as a kind of experiment. Uh, in other words, just experimenting with an attitude of trust temporarily in regard to eros, in regard to this sexual image or whatever it is. <clears throat> what gives us even the trust to be able to experiment temporarily? Well, hopefully that's an attitude in our practice anyway, as I would teach it. That's very much uh, you know, uh, a key ingredient. Experimentation, playfulness, uh, with mindfulness, discerning what happens when I do this, what happens when I conceive this way, what happens when I look this way. Um, but knowing, uh, developing a, a first-hand knowledge that the, con- the conception, the conceptual framework that I entertain in any moment, and the way of looking shapes and conditions um, the experiences that then unfold. Simple, um, deep understanding of dependent arising. It can be taken deeper and deeper, as we said. But knowing that allows me to experiment even with just a little bit of trusting, um, trusting, for example, the, this idea that <coughs> eros or desire at root is, is a treasure. There's something to be treasured there. Despite the, you, you, you know, its o- obvious connection with, with uh, <coughs> suffering and dukkha, something wrapped up in, in, in eros and desire is a treasure. That it, trusting maybe that may express um, a deeper intelligence of soul. Um, so it's like um, searching for jewels or searching for gold. You have to clean off the dross um, and uh, mine a little bit and find something. Find the gem there, um, right in the middle of of the eros or the desire. Brush off the other stuff. Um, again, a limited analogy, um, but again, trusting perhaps a little bit that there is some kind of telos operating here. There's something through desire, through eros, is pulling us towards an end uh, that is, if you like, constellated by the soul's intelligence or wisdom or the wisdom of the Buddha nature, or whatever. Um, That trust, a little bit of trust, experimenting with that eros, may itself be holy or divine in origin, though it's easily distorted or uh, 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 in different ways. So... Th- those kinds of um, trust, which for some may may sound really far out already, um, but they... may well emerge um, just from a, what we're calling the phenomenological impro- approach with an open-minded inquiry into um, our experience, into Im- Im- imaginal practice and into soul-making and into eros. But these things, just we've mentioned so far, the um, rootedness in ethics uh, in, in an integrated way, the uh, skill and confidence in emotional awareness and energetics and the um, Certain amount of trust and wisdom in in regard to eros, and we could we could call this a kind of um, a skill set. I'm going to mention more, uh, but we could call that a skill set, and and that that skill set or that language of skill set implies that these are developable things. That relationship with ethics is developable. That skill with the emotion uh, emotions and the energies is developable. Even that trust is developable. So use the language of skill set. Um, to imply partly that these are developable, developable things, factors, elements. If we talk a bit about um, equanimity, you know, which is obviously a key a key word in Buddha Dharma, and so, well, how does that come into all this business uh, when you talk about desire and passion and eros and all that? Equanimity, and we may wonder, well, what about the equanimity? Or I have a lot of eros and uh, I, I keep getting uh, falling over or, or, or you know, getting um, floored by, by, by my desire or whatever. So equanimity, um, what does that mean? How does it um, come in, in in relation to this path? So the you know, equanimity Im- implies uh, several things. We could say implies balance. 
So that means not um, toppling over, either forward towards this object that we're enamored with or that there's an erotic connection with, or kind of backwards in, in recoil, in fear, um, of different kinds of fear that can come up in relationship when, when there's a lot of eros. So equanimity implies balance. What, 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 would it, what does this whole word balance then mean in relationship to eros? Um, steadiness um, is implied uh, um, in, in the sense of like uh, maybe that's the wrong word but not short circuiting yeah steadiness of, of kind of uh, that it can last uh, that the eros can last a flame that can burn steadily that's what I mean um, uh, so sometimes the eros it, it's like a, a flame that just you know, a lot of charge goes through the electrical circuit and it just blows the circuit. Or it's short circuits. Or the whole thing just collapses. It kind of caves in on itself. So this, all this is, is very common with Eros. There's um, a lot of Eros and there's this imbalance falling over one way, either towards or away from, or kind of blowing out or collapsing inwards or something. But equanimity implies balance. It implies this implies this kind of steadiness. It also implies spaciousness, meaning uh, non-contraction. So again, what does this mean in relationship to Eros? That it doesn't, for instance, contract in craving. That it doesn't uh, contract in realism as well. Um, That it doesn't, there's not contraction um, emotionally or energetically, um, a shrinking or freezing. Um, a contraction of view. So all this is implied in that. Um, But what does it mean, equanimity, in our life and in our practice and in relation to Eros? So this is actually, I think, more interesting than um, we often hear about, uh, or we might first think about when we consider equanimity as a a sort of um, word in Buddha Dharma. So some of you will know from meditation that really deep equanimity, um, or experiences of deep equanimity, when there's really this kind of um, letting go of the kind of uh, pushing away of of, um, experience that we don't like in in some way or that's unpleasant, and uh, letting go also of the kind of um, pulling towards us or trying to pull ourselves towards um, a pleasant experience or attractive experience. When there's really um, that developed in the meditation, go deeper and deeper and deeper, uh, it takes you into um, deeper and deeper into non-fabrication, to a, it lessens fabrication um, and eventually in, into kind of the unfabricated. So Experiences of deep equanimity te- are, are experiences of much less fabrication, uh, you know, on a spectrum um, of fabrication of perception. Um, so the experience of spaciousness is also connected with that. Um, deep equanimity often is an experience of, of deep spaciousness, deep unfabricating, sometimes blackness. So blackness and equanimity, we touched on this in the last retreat. Um, th- these are all kind of characteristic of states of meditative states of deep equanimity, and they bring um, they bring generally speaking um, over time and not just when when those kind of states are experienced once or twice but but repeated sort of descent or immersion in those kind of states opening to them in meditation bring um, generally speaking in one's life a kind of steadiness. Um, and spaciousness with respect to the things of the world. So we taste something, we taste a whole different perspective and sense of things in those states, whole different perspective, whole different kind of sense of existence in those states, and that brings, generally speaking, um, over time, with repeated immersion, in, out, in, out, um, this kind of, a kind of steadiness and spaciousness with respect to the things of the world. And um, and in a way, less kind of craving um, w- with regard to the things of the world. 
The shadow side of all that is maybe those kinds of experiences, those kind of perspectives can also bring a disengagement. Um, so that's interesting. Why does it sometimes bring a kind of disengagement, even sometimes a kind of anemia, but more like a political uh, or environmental disengagement, non-engagement? What does it depend on? Whether it uh, brings a disengagement or actually there can be all the fruits of that deep equanimity and still an engagement, passionate engagement. Um, it partly, I've talked about this before, so I'm not going to labour it now, but partly it depends on the fantasies and on the conceptual frameworks that are operating there in relationship to um, what the path involves and what awakening looks like. Uh, fantasies are always there, concepts are always there, dependent on what they are, shapes uh, the ethics, if we tie into what we said before, and shapes um, the engagement as well, and the degree of engagement, and the fullness, and what it looks like. But shadow aside, potentially, those kind of experiences, again, um, sometimes just one-off will do something radical in one's life, but more generally it's dipping in and out, getting really used to that, those perspectives and those openings. Um, potentially then, because of the, the, the spaciousness and the steadiness, it's almost like something in the being um, has the spaciousness and the steadiness and then a kind of confidence that it can then allow desire, eros, um, in, in regard to certain things in life because that steadiness, that spaciousness, that perspective is absorbed. So Catherine held up this beautiful picture in the last retreat, or was it a cloth, I can't remember, um, with, with the, the, the black, the pitch black sort of background, and then within that, a flame in the, in the, middle, in the middle of it. So the flame of Eros um, is almost is supported, is contextualized, is allowed and given strength by the, the blackness, the... Um, the uh, the deep equanimity, the space around it that we can open to. And so that deep blackness of characteristic of states of, of deep unfabrication. Um, actually, a slight aside, but there's an important point and we'll come back to it. Um, the, the desire for the unfabricated, the desire for the absolute, if some people call it the desire for the transcendent, even the desire for um, onenesses, different, knowing different onenesses at different kind of stages of less fabrication in meditation. The desire for all that, I would say, is a, a soul desire. It's a deep desire. The desire for equanimity in life, for balance... I would actually say, is not a soul desire. It's not something, we don't really have eros about equanimity. Like, we, we can really want it, but it it, it cannot, it, I mean, it would be hard-pressed to imagine that it could function as a kind of soul-making object for us, equanimity, um, uh, in itself, okay? Um but the desire for the unfabricated, which can be, a, or, or this deep um, black, or, or the states of less fabrication, the oneness and, 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 and the space of all that, and the mystical knowing of that, can be a deep soul desire. The desire for equanimity that comes out of here, um, I have a hard time conceiving that that could really be a soul desire, an erotic object, a soul-making object. It's more a, a, a kind of, if you like, a medical aspiration in the sense that um, it's really helpful in our life to have equanimity, to have some coolness, to have some perspective. It's soothing, it's freeing, it's healing um, in, in certain ways. So it's important, it's definitely important, you know, heavens, it's really important. Um, and it's important in relation to Eros because it can, um, over time, enable this kind of um, balance with Eros. <clears throat> Um, but that in itself it's not really an erotic object or a soul-making object unlike um, the, unfa the desire for the unfabricated and the unfabricated itself or, or knowing uh, different kinds of oneness, etc. But this, uh, while we're on this subject, you know, you know um, uh, 
so this is still aside, but actually it's quite important to everything that we're saying. So, um, eros implies, uh, or implicit, implicated, woven in, uh, involved in eros, as we're using that word in the big sense, um, it implies psyche and image. It implies the imaginal. And the imaginal psyche and image implies this notion of what we what we've called on other sheets daimons, daimons, imaginal figures, and a duty to the imaginal figure that can sometimes be felt. So eros kind of implies all that, um, wh- whatever that imaginal figure is, or whatever it's kind of Im- imbues. Um, and, uh, and and as I've mentioned, there can be also eros in relationship to the imaginal figure. What, though, is the relationship between freedom and duty? So there's this whole movement in the path towards freedom. And for me, you know, that's a very big word with a lot of dimensions, a lot of directions that may be more, way more than than we initially um, uh, conceive of or hear about or, or whatever. But what's the relationship between freedom and the movement towards freedom and duty? Duty can sometimes be uh, a lessening of freedom, a constraint of freedom. I can't, I'm not totally free because I have this duty that I need to do or need to carry out or whatever it is. So duty often goes with uh, imaginal practice, as I've uh, uh, mentioned on another retreat and uh, opened up. Um, but what's the relationship between duty and freedom? And doesn't duty sometimes also mean a kind of uh, constraint of freedom? So this is, to me, this is just really interesting to uh, be aware of and explore. But one thing I will say, um, for example, right right now, is that um, an imaginal duty and a kind of devotion to that, uh, or those, plural, um, I would say also brings... Uh, not not does it, it doesn't just curtail freedom, um, or certain freedom, but it also brings certain freedoms at certain levels. And oftentimes, it brings freedom in relation to the really big things. So, for example, in relation to death, or the possibility of dying, or the possibility of an early death, even. Uh, Because one feels that one is... um, devoted to, in line with, following one's calling, plugged into one's duty, um, carrying out one's duty as best one one can in the time and the circumstances allotted to one, um, because one feels that uh, alignment, um, then there is a certain freedom in relationship to death, a certain deep deep okayness in relation to, 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 to death and to the big things in life, the big losses, the big ups and downs. You understand that? It keeps your bearings and it gives you a sense of what's important. So, you know, there's that pop uh, phrase book, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. Is, it, is that what it's called? Don't Sweat the Small Stuff? Uh, and then in brackets as the subtitle, um, and it's all small stuff, I think, I think if I remember the title. But um, this is saying, you know, with this whole imaginal dimension and, and the duty there and all that, the duty is there, it's saying, don't sweat the small stuff, but it's not all small stuff. If I say it's all small stuff, I lose the soul dimension, because soul-making has everything to do with meaningfulness and importance and all that. Don't sweat the small stuff, but it's not all small stuff. It matters, matters deeply to our being, to our life, to to what unfolds for us, to our souls, to the cosmos, to God, to the Buddha nature, to the tradition. It matters uh, that we follow our duties, that we sense that, that we give that, uh, you know, a certain amount of reverence and devotion. And what does that look like? And that's not a simple question either. We mentioned uh, earlier on this retreat and on previous retreats, you know, the importance, the delicacy of the question of what 
uh, an image may or may not be asking for, what needs to manifest um, from an image, and the kind of open-mindedness and sensitivity uh, in the inquiry uh, with regard to images and imaginal figures and the sense of duty. Not necessarily at all a simple translation, concretization of the image. So real care uh, needs to be taken in a middle way between that kind of oversimplistic translation, concretization, and a dismissal of what the image might be asking for. So there's a, there's a middle way there. And, uh, you know, no simple answers necessarily. No formulaic answers either. So there's that kind of middle way uh, in regard to all this sense of duty and manifestation uh, and importance. And there's meaningfulness. And there's also the middle way just between, uh, you know, what matters and, and what is empty at the same time as mattering. Seeing image as image, uh, understanding it in relating to it in a way that allows it its potency and power uh, for the soul, at the same time as not reifying and identifying. So, you know, it, in some ways it's asking a lot, in other ways it's just kind of natural to imaginal practice. And uh, it, it may not require a lot of training to do that. People just understand it, intuit it directly um, in the context of imaginal practice. Okay, but anyway, in relation to all this that we've just said, there is clearly <coughs> uh, a complex relationship between duty and freedom. And so in, in some respects, uh, the duty that we feel... Um, if you like, towards an image or from an image, uh, constrains freedom, maybe uh, constrains the equanimity in, in some regards. But, as we've just explained, on the other hand, at the same time, it also uh, brings a kind of deep freedom at certain levels, and also equanimity, as I said, in relation to the big things uh, of life and death. Okay, so let's pause there, um, kind of uh, as we go down our list, and pick up this list um, in the next part in terms of the qualities, the factors uh, that are important and necessary in mastering the fire, as we said, and shaping the vessel uh, for these practices. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.